Hello, everyone. Coming on to quickly say that this episode contains some content referencing emotional and physical abuse. Please be advised. My name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today's guest is Michael Dorian Myers, Executive Director of Black and Gay, an American nonprofit organization committed to advancing the experiences of the Black LGBTQ community. This is being done through the creation of a safe space where the community can, quote, educate, amplify, and liberate our peers. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. So you say you're in Texas. Yes. What part of Texas? I'm in Port Natchez, but it's close to Port Arthur. I don't know if you know the area. No. <laughs> it's a really small area. It's where I grew up. Is that near Houston? It's uh, about an hour and a half away from Houston towards the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. All right. Before we get started, just to kind of get us centered on where we are at right now, how are you doing? How's your week been? Uh, my week has been great, actually. Got some good news, got some good things happening. Mm-hmm. currently doing live interviews on our Instagram and we're starting to build an eco village. So we're getting things ready for that. We just got confirmation yesterday, you know, that it's a go. We'll be getting our 501c3 status mm-hmm. here soon and then starting to fundraise for the land, which will be in Southern Oregon. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is all for the Black and Gay Organization. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. I think you reached out to me on Instagram and I had seen the logo because I really liked it. I'm a graphic designer. So that stood out to me. But when you reached out to me, I was like, cool. And I clicked on the link and I started to follow you and follow some of the things on the actual website, but also to look into more of who you are connected to the project, to Black and Gay, and also what you do outside of that. So yeah, I was just really glad that you did that. Thank you so much. Yeah, and especially your message about like connecting the Black LGBTQ plus community. That really, you know, of course, is a, a personal hotspot for me. I felt like it started sort of out of necessity. I wanted to see more Black queer businesses. And at the time, like I said, I was living in New Orleans. And in New Orleans, there's only one queer Black space, and it's a bar. And I'm thinking, you know, this is crazy that there's so many, not only Black people in this city, but there's so many queer people. There's no other businesses. There's no, you know, there's nothing going on for Black queer people. There's no sort of community building. So I decided to start an art market. And that's how it began. It began as a place where we would basically promote artists. Literally, they were coming to my house. And I would set up my house as an art market. People would come with their stuff they wanted to sell. Um, I had a few drag performers that came out and yeah, we made it like a whole thing. And then as it started to progress and it started to get bigger, I started noticing how much more the community needed. It was more than just artists. You know what I mean? It was more than just, um, it's like our community needs healing. One of them being economic inequality. 
But deeper than that, there's a lot of inner child healing that needs to be done. So that's what basically brought it to where it is today, where now we're hosting, you know, uh, healing rooms on Clubhouse. Yeah, we're trying to basically do more things that are healing for the community, more, uh, more mindfulness, you know what I mean, in the Black queer community. So that's what brought us to this space, the Eco Village, which will be basically a land where you can just go and get some love, get some peace, get some community. And yeah, it's going to be a beautiful place. And the community that we're building has proven that everyone is on board and we're on the right track. Thank you for explaining that. But that is surprising about New Orleans. I'm originally from Arizona, you know, lived in LA for a long time, but I've never been there, but I know that it has a large and very influential Black presence. So to hear that there's only one gay establishment and it's a bar, that's really surprising to me. I mean, for New Orleans, it's not surprising that it's a bar. The research that I had to do basically said that within the city, 86% of the city is Black. That's a huge number. 16% of that own businesses. Basically 16% of the entire population that are Black owned businesses. It just doesn't add up, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, I think in a city like New Orleans, there definitely needs to be more Black queer money. So one of the things that we started to do with the website, like I was telling about the art market, let's say you were an artist and you have a design, like a digital design, we can put that on a t-shirt or on a hat or something. And then we get it printed out and uh, sent to you know, a customer. Mm-hmm. And we share the profits with that person, you know, who's designed it. So it's like putting the money back into the hands of the artist, you know what I mean? But we're also trying to basically build an app that would be a mixture of these things, like dating, um, also entrepreneurial and artistry, you know, an e-commerce area, like sort of eBay, where people can sell their work or sell their crafts or whatever, and also have this Black queer representation, you know what I mean? These are all things that we're pushing together. (laughs) I'll definitely spread the word. And there's somebody I'd like to connect you with in London. When you talked about mental health, he's really promoting that in the Black queer community here in the UK where I'm at, Sean Wallace. So I'll definitely get you guys connected. But when you talked about that, it's good to hear that that's being really pushed in the US too. Um, You know, I, of course, know a little bit on what I've read about your organization, Black and Gay, but I also read the article on Sezzle dot com the interview and i really really love the title which included resilience and i thought for me it captured what you shared in the story it was just really really uh, powerful and connected to what you're doing now and what i got from it was using parts of your story your history that for some may seem hopeless but you used it as a source of strength yeah i guess i can go on and explain yeah So my dad is very uh, military, let's just say military. He's he's from that era. And so when I was growing up, being queer or being different in his eyes just wasn't the thing. And very young, I was, you know, abused uh, physically, mentally for being different, not necessarily for being gay, even though I had been quote unquote caught, you know, in gay situations but it was mostly just because that I was different. So there were times where he would basically abuse me to sort of knock the gay out of me or, or 
So when I turned about 14, 15, it started to get really bad. And it came to this point where he had abused me so bad that I had these markings on me. Like I had a lot of bruises and uh, things on me. And I went to school and the teacher saw, you know, I had all these marks and she's like, oh my God, what's going on? You know, what happened? And I told her, you know, I got in trouble and she called Child Protective Services. They put me in foster care for about a year. And during that time, you know, I was having meetings with my father, like counseling sessions, but they didn't know that during those counseling sessions, he was like talking to me, telling me things to say. And you know what I mean? Mm, wow. So by the end of that year, they ended up moving me back into his house. Things were okay for a couple months. And then of course, things went right back to where they were. Um, I was getting physically abused again. There was one time, the last time um, that we actually got into a fight. I had a guy that came to visit me and he needed a textbook. And it just so happened that my dad's father-in-law saw this boy at our house, like, you know, getting this book from me. And he called my dad, told him that I had somebody at the house. And my dad comes home and of course he's upset. You know, uh, I don't know if I can use profanity on this. Oh, of course, yeah. He said, who you been having in my house sucking dick? You know what I mean? You ain't nothing but a dick sucker, blah, 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 blah. And so he took my fist and he put it to my eye socket and was basically pushing my fist into my eye socket and telling me that's what gay sex feels like. And we got into a huge fight. Afterwards, I tried to kill myself. And they took me to Austin State Hospital. And I spent like three or four months there in the hospital. I was doing great. Well, so I left, went back there, maybe another two weeks back home and another situation happened. Ended up going back to Austin State Hospital. Now this is like eight months of this situation. And then got out of the Austin State Hospital and we had Hurricane Rita. So when Hurricane Rita came, we had to evacuate to Arlington. And during that time, there was a situation, you know, we got into an argument or a fight or whatever. And I ended up getting sent to a place out in Arlington. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a week. And I started to realize, I think from that situation, that it wasn't me, it was him. And so after leaving Arlington, I left. I packed the backpack, I called my grandmother, and I said, I need to leave. I need to leave this place immediately. How old were you? I was about 16, yeah, 15, 16, somewhere around there. And she paid for me for Greyhound to go to Houston to my mom's. And that's where, you know, my freedom started. My mom is a very different person than my dad. Like my mom is also bisexual. She's also very out there. First time I ever did a lot of things was with her. She taught me a lot. You know what I mean? And that was pretty cool. I had that parental guidance on that side. Yeah. And then as I got older, I don't know, I realized that I never want to treat anybody like my dad treated me and that I know that I have a different outlook on life. Maybe the abuse is what made me want to do things like I'm doing now. Um, I watch videos of like this kid named Tyler. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there's a kid named Tyler who was being physically and verbally abused by his family. And I mean, most of these kids, you know, even me, we didn't know that there are resources. You know what I mean? That there are people that you can talk to and say, hey, this is going on at home. 
you know, and this is not right. And I think that's what has brought me to where I am now is that I really want to help people who feel they are trapped or feel that no one cares. That's a testament to there's option A and option B in every life experience. And you chose the one that um, is healing you, but also helping others. Can I ask how old you were when the abuse started? I was very young. I would say around when I was about three or four, I got caught in the bathroom experimenting with another kid. We got caught by the teacher and the teacher told the principal and we both got whippings. And I think from then on, basically it was always this thing of, okay, Michael's different or Michael's gay or whatever. That's basically when it started. Yeah, that's always seems to be the age around the time that people around us notice something's different. Yeah, like I said, when I read the article, it, it hit me. And I didn't know if it was okay to say that because I want to let you tell your story, but it really did affect me in a positive way. And that thing of we never know how our stories can help other people, how our experiences can help other people. Yeah. Thank you for letting me share my story. Of course, of course. So getting back to the Black and gay, if we can, uh, you mentioned that it's in Oregon. Why in Oregon? There's a couple of things because of what we want to do with the land, also because of the climate in Southern Oregon, it's not cold. It's basically right on the border with California. So that area is very warm. The climate's amazing. Um, the land that we have looked at has a lake and a creek on it. So we'd be able to swim and do things like that. And also, I don't know if it's okay to talk about this on here, but we are building like a cannabis farm as well where we will be hiring basically like people who have been convicted of cannabis related charges, giving them jobs. There's a lot of reasons, honestly, but it sort of started because one of the board members used to live there and they said, well, let's look at Oregon. That day we just started looking, found the piece of land. We all fell in love with it. And then I had the idea to call the mayor of the town, called her, she was super nice and, you know, basically said, we wish you all the luck. Here's a few numbers to connect with these people. So these people that I've now connected with through the mayor are now the ones who are helping us with our 501c3 application. Yeah, everybody's really excited to have us there. And uh, yeah. Sounds like you're creating an oasis, like a haven. Thanks sure. A sanctuary, that's a good word for it, yeah. So were there any organizations that you were aware of in Louisiana or in New Orleans that came close to what you're doing now or were attempting to? There's Baldwin and Co. bookstore uh, in New Orleans. I mean, they're not queer-owned, but they are Black-owned. I'm actually going to be there Saturday this weekend for an event, for a Pride event. There is a Black queer men's uh, society called Adodi. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. They have different chapters all over the world, but the one thing is that they're only focused on men and I don't think they have actual land. I think at one point they might have, maybe they were renting that space, but our space is basically gonna be ours. You know, we would have it available for events and things like that. Now, we touched on some of the darker parts of your young life, but who were you as a person growing up? Who was little Michael? Um, I think I was super inventive. 
I was the type of kid that would like take apart a radio, like take it apart, literally unscrew everything and like figure out how to make it into something different. Just interested and curious about how things worked. At one point, I wanted to be a CSI investigator. At one point, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Another time I wanted to be a doctor. I went through so many different phases, like career choices, I guess. But uh, I was just weird, you know what I mean? I think I just enjoyed being odd. My relationship with my father definitely created this like rebellious attitude in me because I just wanted to do everything that he told me not to do. So maybe middle school, high school, I started to get into this like heavy metal rock emo phase. And then, you know, after leaving, like when I went to Houston and lived with my mom, it was like super flamboyant. I was wearing booty shorts and <laughs> the whole thing. So, yeah. At what age were you becoming aware of yourself being attracted to the same gender? I think very young, very, very young. I always had an attraction to people. It was always to energy. It was never to their gender or I don't know how to explain it, but I was just always attracted to energy. Um, like even that, you know, those times of being caught with boys, I was also experimenting with girls. It's just, I wasn't getting caught at those times or people weren't acknowledging those times because it was with the girl. Yeah, I think I've just always been that experimentative sort of person. Even now to this day, I still consider myself bisexual or demisexual. I hope I answered your question. No, no, you did. <laughs> were you aware either, because you said you grew up in a really small town. Were you aware of other children like you or adults who may have been, uh, I don't want to use the word obviously gay, but who were out? No, not until I got into high school did I start seeing like outwardly gay people. Mm -hmm. Just because, like I said, my town is very small and my family is quite well known. My life was just all over the media, basically. Like I, I couldn't hide anything. Yeah, so I didn't really know of anyone up until high school that I could say was openly gay. So I never had any sort of role model as far as, as that goes, you know, not until much, much later. Now, it's a small town. What was the Black population like? The population is actually, I would say, 80% Black. Oh, okay. So similar to New Orleans. But I hung out with maybe the only three or four white kids in my school. When you mentioned the emo, I could kind of see that in you. <laughs> Very alternative, yeah. Yeah. which I was often. Anything to make my dad. Oh, to make him upset. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, if we could touch on briefly again with your relationship with him, were there people within the family or the community that were aware of what was going on as far as the abuse? Yes. Well, the biggest person was my grandmother who advocated for me the most, his mom. My dad's punishments were very severe. Well, he would punish me and leave me home by myself. And then uh, my grandmother would come, you know, and feed me because they would leave me without food, things like that. So she was the one who advocated for me the most. And it was kind of hard because that's her son. And if she says anything, he's the type of person that will not talk to her for months at a time. So if she has anything to say about how you know, he's raising his son, then she's now shunned. But when I did go into foster care, she took me in for quite a while. 
how's your relationship with your family today? Um, I would say that it's sort of like don't ask, don't tell. Like with all the success of the business and everything, my family still can't say like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? Or, you know, that's cool or, you know, there's no acknowledgement or anything. But as far as, you know, them loving me or, you know, them accepting me at family gatherings or whatever, that's totally fine. We just don't talk about, you know, talk about it. And for that reason, I don't really connect with them that often. Even though I am basically back home now, uh, I'm in the same town, but I haven't seen them in almost a month, maybe longer, just for that. That seems to be a familiar story, mine included, where uh, they ask about work. You know, they tell me everybody's business, but they never ask about mine. I think that's unfortunate that that still happens. So it's not just us that it happens to, but I am hopeful that that story will change for future generations. You mentioned, you know, mental health and you getting help for yourself to work through, you know, what you went through. How did you discover that you could get help? Okay, so um, there was a time around 18 where I decided that I was going to go to New Orleans and start a new life. And I ended up being homeless and I had to go to a youth shelter called the Covenant House. And basically from there is where I sort of gained the tools that I needed. You know what I mean? As far as like learning how to find a job, learning how to keep a job, learning how to pay rent, learning how to you know, handle bills and those kinds of things, money management. Yeah. So it was there really that things started to change for me. Because before then, I was wild, you know what I mean? The Covenant House really gave me the stepping stones I needed to grow. Are they still around? Yeah, the Covenant House is, it's on Toulouse and Rampart. Uh I think they only take kids from, I want to say 15, 14, something like that, until 22. And inside of this place, they have in-house healthcare. And for the younger kids they have in-house education and because I was 18 or 19 I didn't have the education part but I needed to basically go out and find a job so is this just LGBT or is it for anyone no okay it is for everyone that's good to hear Connected to mental health, I just love that we're hearing that more and more these days. One of the things I do love within the last year, especially around race and racism, is that we're talking not about the anger, but about the pain that we have to endure. I think people are able to connect to the physical pain, but they don't often think about the emotional and the psychological pain. So it's, it's like really good to hear that that's really being pushed, especially from a Black LGBT perspective. I'll say this until I get tired of saying it. Is like I feel like mainstream gay community is just ahead of us. You know, I think some of that is connected to racism, but I like that we have stories like yours that are saying, "What can we do to change this narrative?" So, why did you choose New Orleans? That's a very good question. I work from feelings a lot, and it was actually my birthday. And I wanted to drink. (laughs) My plan was to go to New Orleans for three days. And during those three days, I fell in love with the city and ended up staying. The first time I stayed about nine months. And then I left, lived in California for a bit, then came back. And I've been back and forth there so many times. 
I saw in one of the pieces that I read about your travel internationally. Now, how did that get started? So I was working in New Orleans, you know, as a pastry chef and met a guy who had came to visit from London. And while he was visiting, we just fell in love. And before he left, you know, we had this talking. Basically, we said, okay, we need to see each other again but it won't be in London and it won't be in New Orleans. So let's meet somewhere completely neutral to the two of us. So I was kind of joking. I was like, well, what about India? <laughs> and it just stuck. So I had never left US before, had never, you know, had no passport, anything. So I got all of this stuff together in a month. And during this whole month, we were separated, you know, him in London, me in New Orleans. We were FaceTiming every day. We both took a vow of celibacy during that time. Yeah, so I sold all of my stuff, got my passport, got my plane ticket, quit the job, which is funny. My boss told me, you know, you should go. You should definitely go. So did that. We traveled India for a month. We traveled Sri Lanka for a month. And then we were breaking up. So we went back to London. And so I stayed in London for about two months. And then I went back to US, went back to working at the pastry shop in New Orleans. And during that time, I was like, man, I really want to travel. I can do this on my own this time. So I got connected with a place called World Packers, which is like a, a volunteer workaway program sort of thing. And I planned out four months of volunteering in different countries in Europe, mm-hmm. one in Portugal and France and in Ireland. That four months turned into four years. Four years. Yeah, going to different places, traveling, volunteering. I stayed in Greece for about eight months. I stayed in Portugal for quite a while. I also started working there as well, like in a pastry shop. I really, really enjoy Europe. I really enjoy traveling. But now I feel like my place is to get this off the ground. And then I'm go back again. Yeah. <laughs> How many countries have you visited? It's been about 18, maybe a little bit more. Uh, okay. Can you name all of them? Oh, man. <laughs> um, let's see. Starting with Portugal, France, Spain, Ireland, UK, Greece, Italy, Croatia, Germany, <laughs> uh, the Netherlands, Czech Republic. Where am I at? 10. Czech Republic, Morocco, Sicily. Does Sicily count? Or oh, is that it? <laughs> um, yeah, basically all of the west side of Europe. Uh-huh. I've also done Norway. I've done Poland. I've done Sweden, Switzerland. I've done a lot. Do you have a favorite country or city outside of the U.S.? Definitely Portugal. Portugal, okay. Faro in Portugal is one of my favorite cities. And Berlin, Berlin. Oh, Berlin. I've only been once to Berlin. I went for my birthday last year. My focus is on Sweden, and that's another story. I've been going back and forth for a few years, but that's mainly why I'm here now. But uh, I went to Berlin for my birthday last year, and I didn't know what to expect, but I was like, I, I want to come back here. <laughs> that's amazing. So how is it for you traveling as a Black person? Um, well, it's funny that you say that because I never had any issues except for in Croatia. This was right before I went to Greece, so towards the end of my trip. During the whole time, like, never had one issue with, you know, me being Black. Now, me being American was another thing. 
but being black was never an issue. But I definitely got people who did not like, you know, Americans. You know, they don't like the accent or they don't like the fact that you don't speak their language. But I was trying really hard. I, I do speak four languages. Ah, okay. um, but I was trying really hard to learn like Italian. But Greek was probably the hardest. What languages do you speak? Um, so now I'm speaking Portuguese, French, Greek, and English. What uh, caused that interest in, in, which is, I think, a good one to have, but what caused that interest in other languages? Definitely from traveling. When I first started traveling, it was like, you meet people, you just admire them, you know, their ability to sort of, you know, speak your language and understand what you're saying. And then also be able to like mentally hear somebody else or, you know, speak to somebody else in another language. And me, I'm very nosy. <laughs> And so I like to be able to understand what people are saying, you know, especially if they're talking around me. So before I planned my trip to Portugal to go to Europe, I started doing Michelle Thomas, basically a language CD. I spoke French from before. I spoke French back in high school for a long time. I already had some grasp of language. And then, like I said, starting the CD, I started it eight days before I actually left for Portugal. And when I got to Portugal, I had no choice but to speak Portuguese because everyone there, you know, especially where I'm volunteering, no one speaks English almost at all. So that helped me a lot with learning. So yeah, Portuguese, I would say right now is the one that I speak the most in my day to day. Yeah. In my experience as a native English speaker, it's best if no one speaks the language because I've found that something just kicks in in the human psyche. And it's like, you know, I got to eat tonight. So <laughs> we have to figure this out. Because <laughs> in Sweden, most people there are bilingual with English. And as soon as they hear a native English speaker, they switch to English. It's actually difficult to get people to speak that language to you. That was actually one of the most annoying things. My second round going back to Portugal, because that the second time that I went, I wasn't around as many only Portuguese speakers because I was also working, like I said, and trying to speak in a working environment with people who, you know, also speak English and they get annoyed because you're trying to speak Portuguese or, you know, trying to speak their language. Yeah. Now, as far as international travel, have you seen Black people in all of the places that you visited? Yeah. What's funny is one of the places in Portugal, there was a guy that was actually from Texas, a Black guy from Texas. As far as other places, like Greece, I've met some Black people, but they're not Americans, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Black people, of course, obviously in London as well, UK. Black over there and Black here are very different. The culture is so, so different. I think over there, they're more rooted in African, whereas here, it's very much American culture. And, you know. I think it's similar, my perception is, uh, you know, like, quote unquote, white people. After white, they say I'm Italian or Irish. And I've learned that with the people, especially people coming from the continent of Africa, which I love because one of my pet peeves uh, based on what I learned growing up and just in traveling is that Black people, just that's this, but it's so much bigger than that. <laughs> it's a country, it's a culture, you know, like American, there's a uniqueness to being a Black American, you know, that you can't find anywhere else. Exactly. But in uh, traveling as a Black person, I like that you share that you can travel by yourself. I first started traveling internationally in 2012 by myself. And after that, I was like, give me a ticket and my passport is valid and I'm good to go. <laughs> one way. I just need a one way. Which is actually cheaper a lot of times. When I went to Portugal, when I started my trip, I left 
one way I had $200 in my pocket and I just left. I just knew everything was going to be okay. Now, were you able to connect with the LGBT communities in any of these countries? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think their views on LGBT are very different. There's much more community I found in Europe around LGBT things. But then again, maybe because I was traveling and I was looking for, you know, things to be involved in. I was involved in more things than I was sort of here. You know, I'm working or whatever. So I found a lot more community and with all different races. And you said you were in London for two months. Were you able to get into the scene there or become aware of not just the nightlife, but overall in general? Um, So it's funny that you asked. So in London, I got connected with the Radical Fairies. In London? Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them before. I've heard of them, but I thought they were out of San Francisco. Okay, so it started actually in Oregon. It started basically as a white, cis, male, spiritual LGBT group. And over the years, it really progressed across the U.S. And one of the people who was coming to the U.S., actually founded a branch in the UK, in London. And while I was there, I was able to connect with them and did some things with the fairies there and a few uh, gatherings in France and Berlin. Mm -hmm. So short answer to your question, yeah. So can you explain, I know the name, but I really don't know anything about radical fairies. What is it? They base their spirituality sort of on like Uh, paganism, like neo-paganism, earth magic, these sort of things. And they have events like uh, equinox rituals or solstice rituals, things like that. They have a few sanctuaries, like what I'm trying to build with Black and Gay. Basically, it's like a land, you know, uh, where it's clothing optional and there's, you know, event space and camping space, things like that. They consider themselves fairies because it's like a very magical, mystical, just sort of otherworldly environment. Okay, yeah, thank you for that, yeah. To kind of stay on that theme of LGBT and race, because you mentioned that they started as a whites only or majority group when it started, but in New Orleans, how was the gay scene there? Was there like just a complete separation as far as races or was it more blended? Well, yes and no. Because in New Orleans, you have the tourist culture. So when tourists come, the bars are are pretty much free for everyone. You know what I mean? But obviously, there's like this separation with class. And obviously, the white people make up the high class, I guess, in, in New Orleans. So I would say that there is this culture in New Orleans that white men especially older white men having younger black concubines, let's say. Mm. And so there's that. But like I said, there's only one black gay bar in New Orleans. It still surprises me. (laughs) And that bar, I mean, that's where all the black queer people know to go to. And of course, this is where, you know, the white guys go to look for these black queer boys. It's a similar story, I think, in all cities, are, and especially with online dating being the norm now, is, uh, I think uh, it's made those types of men more um, courageous in what they are looking for. Yeah. I don't know if they know 
least to most of us who are black, how insulting some of their comments are. <laughs> Exactly. And this is not about discriminating on age, but there is, I've noticed too, a definite pattern of men who want to be your uh, caretaker slash savior slash dot, dot, dot. Exactly. <laughs> goes back to, I like what you're doing with your platform and giving us a different story that we don't have to choose that if we don't want to. Connected to Black and Gay, were you interested in community advocacy before then? before you came up with it? I'm gonna say yes, because while I was dabbling and doing volunteer work, I won't say that it was solely for black and queer people. I was mostly doing advocacy for disabled and mentally ill while I was traveling. That was sort of my thing. And then starting Black and Gay, like I said, it, it was mostly begun for artists. And then it sort of branched into this, you know, nonprofit, what it is now. And do you have like any other professional or creative projects connected to or apart from Black and Gay? Right now, no. Black and Gay is my sole focus. Um, I did start a marketing business two years ago. Once I started with Black and Gay, I just left it to the side so I could focus all of my attention on, on Black and Gay. Okay. I've read that you also are connected to the drag scene. I don't know about you, but like are familiar with it? Like when we have our art markets, like I was saying, we hire drag performers. Ah, okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask about the drag scene in New Orleans. From what I understand, there are no spaces for Black drag queens to perform, which is really sad. In that huge city, you know, people are having to go outside of the city basically to find places to perform or perform at places like, you know, what I was doing. So and talking about like having so few spaces for Black LGBTQ people, do you think that's connected solely to race or racism or what is it? I think so, because after Katrina, it really started to get gentrified and you noticed that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the second lines. The second line is a very traditional New Orleans thing that they do where it's like they're dancing in the street, they've got drums, they've got music. And oh, yeah, I think I've seen that, yeah. So um, after Katrina, basically, you stopped seeing Black people doing second line. I mean, that tells you right there that they're really trying to make New Orleans this posh sort of white city, especially in the French Quarter. Uh-huh they're really not making spaces for Black people. That's just the truth of it. Trying to push them out. Yeah. I actually had a coworker who was due to go when that hurricane hit. You know, in my ignorance, I didn't know how large the Black population was in New Orleans. So to hear that they're being pushed out, that's really sad to hear. You know, most Black people were living around the French border, around the CBD area. And after the hurricane, you know, they gentrified. So people weren't able to afford, you know, these new houses or new buildings or whatever. I'm actually watching a documentary on Netflix about soul food and the origins of it. And just really, you know, a lot of the quote unquote Southern cooking is directly from those who were brought over and created these unique cuisines because they had no connection to their native lands anymore. And people are profiting on it who are not Black but I think that's the same as music. One of the things I noticed the first time I traveled as an adult out of this country, out of the U.S., was that Black American culture 
is global right. in music and expressions and style. But, you know, how much of that money is going to the people that created those art forms? Exactly. I want to thank you again for doing this and ask you if you have anything else you'd like to add. I feel like I've said a lot. <laughs> well, thank you again. I wanted to say hello to your dog I saw in the background. <laughs> <laughs> she gets scared when it's, uh, it's starting to thunder outside. She gets really scared. Oh. <laughs> Where can we find you online? So you can see the website, blackandgay.com. The Instagram is at blackandgay1. We're also on Twitter, B-L-K-A-N-D-G-A-Y. You can also see us on Clubhouse, where we host weekly rooms. Sometimes we do random kikis, as they call them. We're also on Facebook. Uh, we have a private Facebook group. If you go to our Instagram, we have a link in our bio. It has all my links on it. Okay. And also when you talked about volunteering, I have another person. She's not a part of the LGBT community, but you mentioned Croatia. She's in Japan now. And I think you guys have some great stories to swap if you're open to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>